I wonder how your experience of church would be different if the church you were a part of was the only one on this continent, as was the case for the church in Philippi when the Apostle Paul first entered into Macedonia on his second missionary journey, which recorded in Acts chapter 16. Think about how your church experience would be different if, if this church, this gospel partnership, was the only group of Christians within hundreds of miles. Even after Paul moved on from Philippi, the first record of other converts is in Thessalonica. That's nearly 100 miles to the southwest, several days' journey away. And though 10 to 12 years have passed since Paul's first visit to Philippi, and the gospel has continued to spread and the church has grown there, it's not as though Philippi and the surrounding regions experienced mass conversions. At the time of this writing, there is still much work to do. There are still many obstacles to overcome to further the advance of the gospel there in Philippi and the surrounding regions. After all, Paul is writing to them while in chains in Rome, the capital of the empire, much like he had been imprisoned while he was first with them in Philippi. So imagine that, that you were a part of that church, whether in Acts 16, when it was first planted, or years later when this letter was written. I wonder, do you think there would be a different degree of seriousness regarding your, your gospel partnership? Do you think there would be a different degree of importance placed on the time that you're able to spend together each week? Do you think there's a different degree of intimacy in your fellowship and in your unity in the gospel? Well, given the shifts away from Christianity in our day, in our culture, shifts away from even so-called organized religion in general, should there really be that much of a difference in regard to our partnership in the gospel? I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. <clears throat> you can find it on page 199 in the second half of the Pew Bible. With this sermon really being the second half of last week's sermon, we need to start reading again back at verse 10, as we did last week. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord to you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. By the Holy Spirit, apply your word to our hearts that our lives would be a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to you. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. 
Amen. So having just spoken of his joy in the Philippians, having recently revived their material support of him in verse 10, and then taking a moment to teach on Christian contentment in verse 11, 12, and 13, Paul then returns to the topic of their support in verse 14, saying, yet, that is, although I know how to face hunger and to be in need, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. The NIV renders it, it was good of you. Paul is using the same root words here that he uses in a similar context, Galatians 6 verse 9, where he commands, let us not grow weary of doing good. Supporting Paul, the Philippians were were doing good. But it's interesting that he doesn't simply say, you did good, you have done well to support my needs, or you did good, you have done well to support my ministry. He says, you have done well to share my troubles. The word for share here is simply one of the verb forms of the word for fellowship or partnership found so often in the New Testament, koinonia. In providing material support for this missionary's needs, they can be described as partnering and fellowshipping, not just in his ministry, but as partnering and fellowshipping in his troubles. Though Paul is nearly a thousand miles away from them, they are able to fellowship with him by helping to bear his burdens through material support. This form of gospel partnership is not new for them, right? We see it. It started back when Paul first planted the church in Philippi some 10 to 12 years earlier. He says in verse 15, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. What an interesting way to put it. This all started, quote, in the beginning of the gospel. No, he's not referring to the moment that the gospel was first proclaimed and explained by Jesus, to his first disciples after he rose from the grave. Nor is Paul referring to the start of his own gospel ministry. Now, that had been going on for 15 or more years before he ever made it to Philippi. No, this is referring to the moment that Paul first shared the gospel with Lydia and her company of women who had gathered for prayer at the riverside in Acts 16. And, quote, the Lord opened her heart. And she believed and was baptized. That was the beginning of the gospel on the European continent, as the first church of Europe was planted there in Philippi. And with the start of that church, immediately following the conversion of Lydia, so too began the beginning of that church's gospel partnership with Paul, as she immediately opened her home to Paul and to his companions for them to stay in as they labored together in gospel ministry there in Philippi. The the Philippians continued to send Paul material support for some time. When he says that no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only, he's using accounting language to commend the Philippians for being givers and not just takers. True partners in his ministry, not just consumers of his ministry. And, of course, their partnership involved more than just helping to provide for him. It also involved prayer. They prayed for him. Paul acknowledges their prayers for him in in chapter 1, verse 19. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul makes clear that their partnership also involved proclaiming the same gospel that he proclaimed, even in the face of the same persecution. This is gospel partnership, providing for missionaries, praying for missionaries 
and proclaiming the same gospel at home that the missionaries are proclaiming abroad. That's gospel partnership. The Philippians were faithful in these matters. Paul wrote about the Philippians' faithfulness to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 8, Paul wrote this, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you, Corinthians. And when I was with you, Corinthians, and I was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Well, given what Paul says here in Philippians 4.15, clearly that is a reference to the Philippians. They are the Macedonians who supplied Paul's needs while he was in Corinth. Verse 16 of our passage, Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Why does he say even in Thessalonica? Well, well, in verse 15 he had just said, When I left Macedonia you entered into partnership with me, but, but Thessalonica, which is where he first went when he left Philippi, well, that was the capital city of Macedonia. So I think he's saying, having written verse 15, he says, well, actually, before I even was out of Macedonia, you started sending aid. And not just once. This is an important fruit of faith. The heart transformation that is brought by the gospel, it should stir a desire to be used by God to help others come to know him as you have come to know him both near and far, both those who live around you and are in many ways like you and those who live far away from you and are in many ways quite different from you. The Philippians exemplified this well as they were quick and eager to provide for Paul's ministry, both while he was there ministering to them in Philippi and while he was abroad ministering to others far away. As we grow in in knowing God, we should likewise expect to grow in our desire to support frontier, cross-cultural, foreign missionaries taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, as well as to support the ministries of our local church. Now here in in the letter to the Philippians, Paul is focused on their giving to support his, his missionary work while he is far away from them. But in that verse in Galatians that I quoted earlier about not growing weary and doing good, using the same language as here, Paul was specifically addressing the support of their local churches there in Galatia. That passage reads this way, Galatians 6, verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches the word. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but to the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. He spells out this principle even more clearly in in 1 Corinthians 9.14, saying, quote, The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The same passion should drive both the desire to support local church ministries and the desire to support foreign missionaries. Namely, the desire for God to be worshipped as he ought to be worshipped, both for the good of the worshipper and for the glory of God. That's Paul's driving passion. That's the reason for his rejoicing in their material support of him and his ministry. Again, as I said last week, his joy is not about the way that the gifts that they sent to him benefited him and, and met his needs. No, his joy is about what the giving of that gift said about the church's walk with the Lord. People love, Paul loves people, not things. 
as he explains in verse 17 of our passage. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What is this fruit that increases to their credit? The fruit that increases to the credit of all who give toward kingdom causes. Well, of course, there's the, there's the fruit of the conversions that will come from the ministries that we support. As other sinners like us receive the gift of eternal life. That's, that's the most direct fruit that often motivates this. As we saw in verse 10, there was also the fruit of joy in the heart of the missionary they were supporting. Fellowshipping in his burdens. That's no small matter. That is a glorious fruit. As we see here in verse 18, there is the fruit of pleasing God. That's no small matter. What an amazing thing that sin-tainted creatures like us have the ability to bring our Creator genuine pleasure. It's amazing. That is a wonderful fruit. And fourthly, many have noted the way that, that giving toward kingdom causes contributes to our own sanctification, to our own growth in godliness. Recall that, that Paul began this letter from a prison in Rome in chains. He began it with a prayer for their continued spiritual growth, saying this in chapter 1, verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, what burdened Paul's heart while he's in chains in Rome, what was it? It was the sanctification of those he'd already ministered to. And a key part of our sanctification, many have noted, is our giving to the continued advance of the gospel that helps us grow in godliness. But the fruit that increases to your credit, as he says here, it may be referring more beyond these four things that I just noted. The ESV footnote indicates that the, this phrase could be translated the profit that increases and accrues to your account. The profit that accrues to your account. Well, that kind of language brings to mind the teachings of the New Testament regarding heavenly rewards, doesn't it? As Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, he said this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. It's instructive for us. Our, our instinct, our fleshly temptation, is to view heavenly treasures as, as less real and less concrete than earthly treasures that we have. And thus we struggle for this to motivate us. But that's the wrong way to look at it. Earthly treasures are highly unstable. They can vanish in an instant. Our economy could absolutely collapse at any moment. And even apart from that, our own personal savings could suddenly be emptied to cover some catastrophic expense for ourselves or some catastrophic expense for our loved ones that our insurance companies find a way around covering. Earthly treasures are fleeting. They can, they can vanish in an instant, and they, they are temporary. Even if they don't all vanish before you die, they'll be of no use to you once you die. Terry read from Proverbs 11, verse 4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. 
the day of wrath in this proverb, it doesn't just apply to death and to the coming judgment. It applies to that, but it also applies to, to all calamity that you might face in life. An untreatable illness, a crippling injury, severe physical pain, the heartbreak of losing loved ones. What are your earthly treasures going to do for you then? So you tell me, which ones are more real and concrete? The earthly treasures that are unstable, fleeting, and often of relatively or no use? Or spiritual and heavenly treasures that are unshakable, eternal, and of use in any and every circumstance, now and forevermore? Which is more real and concrete? Earlier in this series, I discussed the the five college-educated American missionaries who risked and lost their lives attempting to reach the Urani in Ecuador with the gospel in the 1950s. One of those men was Jim Elliott, and he famously wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, your riches, your life, to gain what he cannot lose, heavenly treasure. And in verse 18, Paul makes clear that in thanking the Philippians, Paul's not asking for them to give him any further support. That's not why he's thanking them. At least he doesn't need any at this time. And he describes their gift as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He's clearly employing the the Old Testament language of burnt offerings. And he's doing that in order to explicitly describe their giving to kingdom causes as an act of worship. But what I find most challenging here is the language of sacrifice. Because there's a difference. There's a difference between giving generously and giving sacrificially. You can give generously without actually having given sacrificially. In order for it to be sacrificial, your giving actually has to make an impact, not just on your savings account, that's no real sacrifice, but on your lifestyle on the clothes that you wear, on the car that you drive, on the house that you live in, on the food that you eat. We read this challenging account in Luke chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty but in all that she had to live on. It was sacrifice. So so we need to be asking ourselves not, am I being generous, but am I being sacrificial? Given what we read about the Philippians in verse 15 and, and how that lines up with Paul's description of the Macedonians that we read in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, when Paul writes about the Macedonians giving financially, despite being in extreme poverty, it appears that he certainly includes this church in Philippi, if not primarily referring to the Philippians. Hear what Paul writes about these Macedonians to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and I can testify beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. 
Sacrificially giving to advance the gospel and sacrificially giving to support Christians in need is an act of worship. Fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So then what hinders us? What hinders our sacrificial giving? In the account of the rich young ruler in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which I quoted last week, why did Jesus say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? Why would that be? That quote from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 about laying up treasures in heaven is, is followed by these words, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How you use your resources that have been entrusted to you, it reveals what you most love. It reveals what you worship. Money can, be a, it can have a tremendous power over us. It tempts us to trust in it, to trust in it for our security and our, our well-being as though it can protect us from harm on the day of wrath and calamity. It can't. It tempts us to, to either look to the amassing of money or, or to the, what money can buy for our ultimate satisfaction, to satisfy the deepest longings of our soul, to heal the brokenness that we feel within. But it can't. It tempts us to find our identity, our value, our significance in being the kind of person who has money and can make money. People who are better than others at making money are tempted to overgeneralize this reality and to simply see themselves as better than others. Their money becomes integral to their own conception of who they are and why they matter in this world. And what you look to for security and satisfaction and for identity and significance, well, that becomes your God. And Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. This is challenging. So, so what's the solution? How do we break the power that money holds over us? Well, we, we allow the light of Scripture to expose this enslavement, as we're doing now. We contemplate the superior value of spiritual and heavenly treasures, as we're doing now. But there's something more. That passage in 2 Corinthians 8, where, where Paul encourages the Corinthians to give like the Macedonians, like the Philippians gave, Paul writes this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We break free of the hold that money has over us by looking to the incarnation and crucifixion of God the Son, which Paul so beautifully laid out in the Christ hymn of chapter 2 of Philippians. God the Son left the glory of heaven to become a man. He left the glory of living alongside the Father to experience weakness and pain and loss, to suffer the humiliation of death on a cross in order that we might become rich, in order that we might be adopted as co-heirs of his kingdom, that we might inherit the earth. Only the gospel has the supernatural power to break the power that money holds over us. As Jesus explained in that count of the rich young ruler, he said this, when his disciples marveled that the rich man could not enter heaven, they said, who, who then can be saved? Jesus said this, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. 
the power of the gospel. Closing out the letter to the Philippians, verse 19 reads this way, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's been said that God is no man's debtor. Now that can mean two different things, and rightfully so. Sometimes it's meant to communicate that God owes no one anything, which is absolutely true. But the phrase, God is no man's debtor, can also sum up this point well, that God blesses obedience, one way or another, and that you can't outgive God. I remember nearly 20 years ago when Ashley and I first came under conviction that we needed to at least give a tenth of our pre-tax income to the ministries of our local church, not because it's a law laid down by God, but because of a growing desire within us to genuinely partner together with our fellow church members, to continue that church's ministry that God was so powerfully using to bless us spiritually, and to help spread the reach of that ministry to those walking in darkness. Up until that point, we, we had been giving something weekly, but certainly nowhere near what we suddenly felt compelled to give what we needed to give. And this conviction came upon us at a very inopportune time, at least from a worldly perspective. We had hardly managed to accrue any savings, and what we had managed to accrue was a sizable debt. And we had just awoken to the foolishness of the way that we were living, and we had just resolved to make changes to get ourselves out of that debt as fast as possible. Doubling or or tripling our giving to the church was certainly not going to help us achieve that goal, but that's what the Lord put upon our heart to do, and so that's what we did, and before we knew it, we were debt-free. Now, I'm not laying that down as a promise of what God will do in any and every search situation. I'm simply saying that when Paul speaks of giving what you have decided in your heart to give in 2 Corinthians, giving as, as you have been led by by God as you diligently pray for God's guidance, as you you give cheerfully, not out of a desire to improve your own financial well-being, but out of a desire to glorify God, to advance his kingdom. When you do that, what the Lord puts on your heart may not be smiled upon by your financial advisor, but it will be smiled upon by the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he will see to it that you do not regret your decision. Paul closes the letter with these words in verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This letter commending their dedication to gospel partnership began with a prayer. Began with a prayer for God's grace to be upon them, as Paul wrote at the very beginning, verse 2, chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so too it ends with a prayer for God's grace, saying the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. For everything in between, from that first opening prayer for God's grace to this closing prayer for God's grace, everything in between is utterly dependent upon God's grace. We need God's grace at work in us and through our gospel partnership here at Richland Hills Christian Church so that our love may abound more and more, as he said, so that our manner of life may be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that we may be found standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, as he wrote in chapter 1. 
by God's grace, may Richland Hills Christian Church experience the same degree of seriousness regarding our gospel partnership as that church in Philippi did. May we experience the same degree of importance placed upon the times that we're able to gather each week. May we experience the same degree of intimacy in our fellowship and in our unity in the gospel as they did. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we pray for your grace to transform our hearts as you transformed the hearts of those Philippians, that we may walk worthy of the gospel as we labor together for the gospel. By the Holy Spirit, cause the collective life of Richland Hills Christian Church to be a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to you. Bless the preaching of your word. In and for the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.